Well, why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles. We're in Mark chapter 14. We're going to start at the beginning of that chapter. This passage is about waste. As I thought about that, I said, you know, waste is something that we're very familiar with, but we don't think about it a whole lot. So I looked up some statistics you may be interested in while you're turning to Mark chapter 14. The average human being in America wastes 250 pounds of food every year. That's about six to eight weeks of average food intake that's wasted throughout the course of a year. We produce a lot of garbage, and we often don't think about it because we just put it out on our curb and it's gone. You know, where does it go? It's almost magical. Uh, But if you filled all the garbage from an entire year of Americans and you were to put it in full garbage trucks lined up end to end, that line of garbage trucks would stretch from New York to Los Angeles 100 times with the waste from just one year. How about wasting time? The average American wastes 26 minutes each way to work. 26 minutes back home to work. Now, some of you may be shorter than that. Some of you may be longer than that. But if if the average is 26 minutes, if you calculate that over the course of the year, we waste nine days commuting to work every single year. And I I read that and I thought, man, I, I could use a second vacation Wouldn't that be nice to be able to take that time off? Collectively, if you add up all the commute times over the course of 12 months, it equals three and a half million years worth of time commuting to and from work in our country. Now, all this kind of waste is going along, and you know, you can debate how much of that time is wasted in the car, et cetera, but all this waste is going along, mostly invisible or unconscious to us. There's one kind of waste that that really grabs our attention. And it's the idea that none of us want to waste our lives. In fact, if you think about advertising, most of the advertising out there sort of grabs onto this fear that you're going to miss something, that you're going to waste something. So the advertising says something like this. You only get one chance out there, so make the most of it. And of course, the key to making the most of it is to buy our product, you know. So live life to the fullest. Live it to the max. Enjoy it. No regrets. Don't waste a thing. And you thought, well, maybe I do need that timeshare. You know, maybe I do need that boat. Otherwise, I'm missing out. Otherwise, I'm wasting my life. I don't want to get to the end with a truckload of regrets. Now, what's interesting about this sort of impulse in our culture, which is rapidly, you know, spinning faster and faster and faster, maximize your life, don't miss out, live no regrets, it actually matches, in some ways, a biblical worldview. So Scripture would say, Live life in such a way with no regrets. But the question is, what does that actually mean? Like, what does it mean to live life to the full? What does it mean to get to the end with no regrets? What does it mean to not waste your life? Right? This is where the scripture would come at things from a very, very different angle. And I think oftentimes what we're doing here week in, week out as we're unpacking the scripture is we are speaking into minds and hearts that have been shaped and formed by a culture that takes this concept in a very different direction. And so our passage this morning is a great one to talk about this. It's a passage about waste. And we're going to meet a woman in this passage who knows a thing or two about waste. She knows exactly what to waste and she knows exactly what not to waste. So in Mark chapter 14, what we'll see is this is a passage that's talked about, or it's actually covered in three of the four Gospels. So we call those parallel passages. So not only in Mark 14, but also in Matthew 26 and John 12, the same story. And so we can read those other accounts and get additional details that aren't in Mark's 
account. It's almost like reading a news story from three different websites. And we're going to refer a couple of times to those details. But let's jump in in Mark 14, starting in verse 1. And I'll just read a verse or two and then talk. And read a verse or two and talk as we tend to do. So here we go. 14, verse 1. Now the Passover of unleavened bread... Passover and unleavened bread were two days away and the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. Now we've gone through Mark many, many months. We're getting to the place now where the pace is quickening. It's the last week of Jesus' life and you can see right here the plot that has been talked about earlier but now is is really picking up intensity to kill Jesus. Like most passages in Mark, this one follows the sandwich structure. We've talked about that dozens of times. So you have a theme introduced at the top, it'll be reintroduced at the bottom, and there's something sandwiched in the middle. In this particular case, the theme of the bread pieces on the top and bottom is the plot to kill Jesus. It's obviously an ominous theme. Sandwiched in the middle is something very beautiful. And so we see that here beginning in verse 3. Let's take a look. While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table... There came a woman with an alabaster vial, a very costly perfume of pure nard, and she broke the vial and poured it over his head. All right, that verse has a lot of richness to it. Let's dig in for a few minutes. First of all, we learn that Jesus is in Bethany. That's a significant setting. Let me explain. Bethany was just a couple of miles east of Jerusalem. Uh, Think of it almost like a bedroom community or kind of a suburb of Jerusalem so people could live there and then walk to and fro. And this is what Jesus did his last week. He stayed in Bethany and every morning would go to Jerusalem and every evening would return to Bethany. So they're in Bethany. Now we know that Bethany is the hometown of a few very important individuals. One is Lazarus. Now, the account of Lazarus being raised from the dead is not included in Mark's gospel, but it is in John's gospel. And what John tells us is Lazarus was raised from the grave not long before the final week of Jesus' life. So what this means is you had a man who was dead that is now back to life, and we learn also from John's account that Lazarus was present at the dinner that Jesus is at this exact moment in time. We also know from John and Matthew's account that Mary and Martha, Lazarus's sisters, were also there. So you start to get the idea of what's happening. This was more than likely a celebratory dinner to honor Jesus. So you have a man who was dead recently who is now alive. You have sisters who are so recently mourning, devastated with grief, that are now celebrating and feasting, not wearing black anymore, not wearing ash anymore, right? This is a feast in honor of Jesus. And we get this other detail from Mark's account that the home they were in was Simon the leper. Now, we don't know anything else about Simon the leper. He's never mentioned again. But what I can guarantee you was he did not currently have leprosy if Jesus was there. Lepers do not entertain other people. (laughs) Lepers live in isolation. This was his home. The fact that Jesus was here having a dinner party means that this man was no longer a leper. So get this picture in your head. You had a former leper, a former dead man, and former grieving women, and they're all celebrating now. This is a picture of heaven. (laughs) It like literally is a picture of heaven. It's pointing us forward to the feast when all the tears will be dried and, and, and there will be a resurrection of us and we'll be reunited with our loved ones. 
You see, all that's buried in the setting here. You got to understand, to understand this reaction that this woman has of pouring this ointment over Jesus. Now, we also learned that the woman that poured the ointment, we learned this from Matthew and John, was Mary. Not Mary, the mother of Jesus, not Mary Magdalene. This was Mary, the sister of Lazarus. All right, so it starts to make sense why she would pour this expensive perfume out. She's so grateful. He just brought her brother back to life. He just made her family whole again. Now, Mark leaves out that detail. It's a little bit puzzling why, but it actually makes sense for Mark's style. He's the gospel writer that just, you know, he he doesn't give unnecessary details in his mind. He doesn't use a lot of names. So he just calls her the woman, but we know that this is actually Mary. Can you imagine being at this dinner? All right, this is a celebration of life. It's joyful. It's a feast. Now, something happens here that really gets the attention of the disciples, and you're going to see that in a minute. This vase with a large quantity of this substance, that Mark says it's pure nard. By the way, don't get that confused with pure lard. <laughs> lard is what we uh, anoint food with here in the South. <laughs> but this is nard. Now, what is nard? Nard was this very um, aromatic substance, this oil that was painstakingly extracted from the roots of a Himalayan tree. Okay, it's not even native to Israel. This is like they, they went to India to extract this. You know, you get one drop and then you have to add to it and add to it. And this was a very large quantity of this nard. And even more shocking, we learn in all these details in verse 3, that she breaks the vial. So it's in this alabaster, which is another very, you know, fancy, expensive for that, that time period container. She breaks it. Like she doesn't just use a little bit. She breaks it, pours it all out. She, she, she breaks a vase. You know, think of it that way. Inside that vase is all this very expensive, very precious ointment. There's no surprise that there were objections to this outrageous display. We're about to see those in verse 4. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. Uh, you got to understand a couple things. Number one is, you know, how much is, is a denarius, right? Denarii is the plural of denarius. Uh, a denarius was a, a common Roman coin at that time. It was what an average, probably a, a military man or a day laborer would receive at the end of the day. So it was a day's wage for a laborer. Over 300 denarii. Think about that. That's a year's worth of income for the average laborer. I was trying to contemporized this in our context and I said you know an average hourly wage calculate that over an entire year maybe 25 to 30 thousand dollars in our times that was the equivalent is it any wonder that these people objected and said could there not have been a better use for thirty thousand dollars than to blow it on one night by dumping it on Jesus and you know sure yes some of it got on him but probably most of it just like flowed onto the floor And if you've ever been around perfume, it's like a little bit goes a long way, right? (laughs) So there were objections to this. And if we're honest, we're like, yeah, I I, I get it. This does maybe seem a little bit wasteful. Now, what does Jesus think? We'll see that in the next verse. Look at six. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. 
So they call it waste. Jesus calls it a good deed. And, and what I love about the word good in the Greek, it, it's actually the word beautiful. It's usually translated beautiful. Jesus is saying she's done a beautiful thing for me. And so when you hear that, I want you to think about the fact that Jesus constantly poured himself out all the time and almost never do we hear of anyone pouring themselves out for Jesus. And this is one of the very rare times that that happens and Jesus calls it beautiful. Have you ever wondered what God considers beautiful? He makes the sunsets, he made the mountains, he makes the vast array of stars, he makes every single flower and, and this is what he calls beautiful. And as I started thinking as a father this week, I started to get that. And I remembered not too long ago, um, one of our kids, don't raise your hand, but do y'all have that kid that just kind of wears you out? <laughs> I heard like someone laugh really hard there. Yeah, she does. Um, some of you are thinking, man, that kid's sitting right next to me. Or some of you are thinking, what do you, what do you mean one kid? Like, you know, it's all my kids. So um, we, we've got that kid, Right. And uh, it was the end of a really trying week with her. And this was, this was a little while ago. She was probably about seven years old. And, and it just, just really been kind of a, a me-oriented for her, a selfish week. And uh, I'd been working on a sermon. It was Sunday afternoon, and I was just trying to crash on the couch, as I like to do uh, after preaching. And she just was not letting me get any sleep. You know, it was just really frustrating. And, and after a while, I was trying to go to sleep, but floating in between that state, you know, between sleep and being awake, I got really quiet all of a sudden, which was blessed. <laughs> and then she disappeared. You know, I was kind of opened my eyes a little bit and back. And then all, the next thing I feel was this blanket being put over me. You know, I opened my eyes and, and there she was, right? That child. <laughs> but in this moment, she was taking care of dad. That was beautiful to me. I think that's what's happening to Jesus. This is one of those moments. And he says, leave her alone. She's done a beautiful thing. She's not thinking of herself. Now, as we keep going through the passage, we're going to see that Jesus is going to name some significance to her act that probably Mary herself did not realize. Let's take a look. Verse 7. For you always have the poor with you, Jesus says, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them, but you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Okay, you see what was on Jesus' mind? Right? He knows what's going to happen. In fact, he's told this already to his disciples. He's going to die, but they haven't understood it yet. And, and probably even Mary herself was not thinking of that. She's probably just responding in, in outrageous gratitude for raising her brother up from the dead. But Jesus is naming a significance under the surface. And he's saying, listen, I will not be with you longer. This was good and this was appropriate. You'll realize that by the end of the week. He's essentially saying, now the irony is so rich because in Jewish history, the one that you would make a big deal of anointing was not a, a common person or even a rabbi. The one that you really would make a big deal of anointing was the king. You would anoint the king in this kind of way. And yet the irony is that the true king of Israel would come and the only anointing he gets is an anointing for his body before it's killed. What should have been the anointing of a new reign of the true king is instead... It was this woman's act of love and anointing his body before burial, and Jesus is naming that significance. 
Now we get to verse 9, which is one of my favorite verses in this text. I'll explain why. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Guys, this is coming true today. We're halfway around the world. We're 2,000 years later. We're talking about this woman. I am preaching the gospel to you through this text, and we're telling this story of this woman. So you think about prophecies. We tend to think prophecies are, you know, old prophecies that came true a long time ago or old prophecies that haven't yet come true, but they will come true someday, someday in the future. This one's coming true today. And it has been coming true for the last 2,000 years. And it will continue to come true until Jesus comes back. Now, we get to verse 10 and 11, and this is the, the back end again. This goes back to the, the bread, and it's a moldy, crusty, icky bread, right? It's ominous because it's the plot to kill Jesus. Let's read it, verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. They were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money, and he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. Now, here's what's very significant about this. Mark doesn't tell us, but in Matthew and John, we learn that the individuals who were complaining about the, the, the ostentatious gift that Mary had given Jesus, they were the disciples. It was the disciples themselves that were scolding Mary and complaining and saying, you know, couldn't this have been used for a better purpose? In fact, we also know from the parallel accounts that guess who it was that was leading the charge in the complaints? the treasurer of the disciples, who was Judas. Is it any surprise, is it any mistake that as soon as Judas sees this waste, $30,000 could have been put to good use. Like, I think he's done. I think he's done with Jesus. He's done with this mission. You mean Jesus didn't even scold her? Jesus said that was a good thing. How can that be a good thing? Do I really want to serve this kind of man, the next thing we know, he's giving the chief priests and, and religious leaders exactly what they were hoping for. He's going to betray the king. So Mark is purposely contrasting the plot with the, the beautiful gift in the middle. I think what he's essentially saying is, if you want to know where the real waste is, don't look at the woman with the perfume. Look at the man who would betray his master. All right, so that's the text. Now, what do we learn from the text? I, I tried to go through some of that exposition as quickly as I could because there's a lot of rich application. I want to spend the rest of our time on the application. Three lessons that I think can help us in this. Lesson number one, wasting your life on Jesus is never a waste. So-called wasting your life on Jesus is never, ever a waste. Now, I know that kind of sounds like a, a preacher thing to say, right? That's a church thing to hear. But I, I want you to dig into this with me with your mind, with your brain for a minute. Follow this. What is waste when you really think about it? It's a value judgment, right? Finish this sentence. One man's trash is another man's treasure, what someone considers waste is valuable to someone else. What you throw away, other people would find valuable. What some other people might discard, you might find valuable. Now dig even deeper, okay? Waste is what happens when there's something that has some value and it's misused, discarded, or used for the wrong purpose. So in the disciples' mind, this was waste because it had such huge value and it was misused. It never should have been used all at once. It never should have been dumped out on Jesus and then flowing down on the ground. It went to waste. 
you see. Now, we speak of food going to waste when the food is not eaten because the purpose of food is to be eaten. We speak of an education going to waste when it's not maximized and utilized because that's the purpose of an education. We think of an opportunity being wasted when you didn't use it, you didn't maximize for all what it could have been. In other words, waste is when something valuable is misused. That leads to the question, if you're tracking with me in your mind, that leads to the question, well, what is the highest and best use of anything? What's the purpose? And take that a level deeper. If you don't want to waste your life and you value your life, which I hope you do, you've got to ask the question, what's the purpose of my life? I will never know if I'm wasting my life or not if I don't know what the highest use is of that life. You follow that? So this is a question we absolutely must wrestle with. And so let me give you some of the possible answers, some of the kind of the targets where you can get, get to the end of your life and look back and say, if I hit that target, I didn't waste my life. I didn't waste my time, my energy, my effort, my money, my career. So here's some things you can go after. One of them is go after happiness. Right? Happiness is not a bad thing. And, and oftentimes what you hear in our culture is as long as you're not harming anyone else, do what makes you happy. You can set that as a goal. All right, that's an option on the table for you. Here's another one. Have you heard this? You know, the goal is to squeeze out as much comfort and pleasure as you can because life is hard, and it is. There's truth to that. So a life of some comfort, a life of some pleasure, it's not necessarily wrong. It's not necessarily evil. You could set that as your target. Here's the third one. We've all heard this one. The person with the most toys wins. You know, in other words, the goal of life is, is competition and it's accumulation. It's a contest. And, and I want to be the one at the end with the, the, the most. Monopoly money, so to speak. We all know there's some problems with that one. Here's one that actually is, is probably a lot more wholesome, a lot more healthy. Many would say the goal is to be well-loved by family and by friends. You don't want to end up alone. You don't want to end up lonely. Ideally, you want to be surrounded by the closest people that love you the most when you pass from this world into the next. Maybe you set that as your goal and you go after that as your chief end. How about this one? This one also has a lot of health and wholesomeness to it. The goal is to be remembered well. You know, Proverbs would even tell us a good name is rather to be had than great riches. The goal is to leave a legacy, to leave a good name, right? We would all want that. Maybe that is the goal that you go after. Here's what I want you to see. Depending on which goal you choose completely changes how you live and completely changes how you evaluate what was wasted and what wasn't at the end. Do you see that? So picking the right goal is huge. It's the difference between a life that's wasted and a life that's not. So what is the goal? What should be the goal? Well, several of those things that I read are grounded in Scripture, but they're not complete. They're not whole. In fact, what I would say, Scripture's pretty clear on what the goal is of a human life. Scripture's pretty clear on the purpose for human beings. And, and it's not anti-happy, and it's not anti-legacy or any of those things. But those are incomplete. Listen to this. Here's what I would say. The highest purpose of human beings is, according to God's word, to glorify God by loving him and loving other people. Like, I think that's what it comes down to. And you will get joy through that. You will get fulfillment in that. Those not 
separate from joy and fulfillment, but the purpose is to glorify God by loving him and loving other people. In other words, we worship him. We make much of him. We point all creation to him. We proclaim his goodness and beauty and salvation to the ends of the earth. And many of you in the room, you're just kind of like, that just doesn't sound that exciting. (laughs) Some of you it does. Some of you it doesn't. But what I'm telling you is whether it sounds exciting or not, that is your purpose. This is what we were made for. And so this is why when I tuck my three girls in at night, there's a prayer I've prayed consistently for them ever since they were babies. And it's, 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 it's not that they would have a good, prosperous, comfortable, safe life. Although I do pray that for them too. But that's not the prayer. The prayer that I pray for my girls is that God would help them to love him supremely and learn to love other people. Now, why do I pray that for them? Because I want to seem religious in their eyes or I I want them to think of me as spiritual or because I'm a pastor and that's what I should pray? No, I pray that for them because I know that's their highest and best purpose. I pray that for them because I know flourishing and joy for my daughters is on the other side of living out that purpose. It's what they were intended for. It's what they were engineered by their creator for. And if they live anything less, they're wasting. You see, waste is the gap in your life between living out that purpose and whatever other purpose you're going after. That's what's wasted. So go back to our text. Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, there is no waste in what this woman is doing. You see, just as this ointment was painstakingly extracted for the purpose of anointing, this woman has been painstakingly crafted and created for the purpose of bringing me honor for the purpose of doing what she is doing in this very moment in time. Mary is living out her purpose. There's no waste. This is why he says what she's done will be remembered wherever the gospel is preached. He's saying, I will not let this go to waste. There is not a drop of that ointment that is going to waste. This story will be told and retold and not just to make Mary look good. We don't even get her name in Mark. It's all about the purpose. It's about God looking good. It's about the gospel going out. And he says, wherever the gospel is preached, the story will be told. You see that? He's not letting any of it go to waste. This is the highest and best purpose, not just for Mary, but Jesus is saying, you too, disciples. And he's saying, you too, disciples in Brentwood, Tennessee in 2017. Here's how I would summarize this. Lesson number one, wasting your life on Jesus, so to speak, is never a waste. In fact, it is exactly what you were made for. Now, we've got a ways to go, two more lessons, because you got to think, what does it actually look like to waste my life on Jesus? And then what happens if I don't want to do it? Okay, like, like how do I overcome that barrier? We'll get to that in lesson three. All right, lesson two, here's what it looks like. If you don't want to waste your life, then withhold nothing from your king. If you don't want to get to the end and look back with a bunch of regrets, then here's what you do. You withhold nothing from your king. That's the key not to waste. I love what Jesus says in verse eight about this woman. He says, she has done what she could. You know, she had the jar. She did it. She used it. 
In other words, there was something she could do and she did it. She didn't leave anything on the table. She didn't leave anything undone. She didn't hold back. She withheld nothing. Now, this is the second time in two chapters, three chapters, that Jesus has praised a woman for withholding nothing. You remember the first time in chapter 12, there's this poor widow and she takes this penny, this widow's mite, and she puts it in the offering and it's this puny, tiny little offering and Jesus sees it and he says, she has given all that she owned. So the penny that the woman gives, the extravagant gift that this next woman gives, Jesus praises them both. What do they both have in common? They withheld nothing. They're living out their purpose. Withhold nothing from your king. Now, some of you are thinking, what does this actually look like for me? Because I don't have a jar of $30,000 perfume. You know, it's kind of what you're thinking. And even if I did, Jesus is not physically present for me to dump it on him. So what's the applicational jump here? Listen, you say you don't have a jar of expensive perfume. Yes, you do. The point of this passage is that you are the perfume. You are that precious, valuable ointment that is meant to be poured out in worship, in honor, in service to the king who would die for you. That's the idea of the passage. This is how we do it. Think of it this way. Our highest purpose, right, is to love God and other people in such a way that nothing's off limits. You know, that we're not like, you know, I'm going to give you a little bit of my ointment, right? What, you know, keep this analogy in your mind. But I'm holding most of it back for me because I need it because I don't know what's going to happen. And, and, and I, I can't give it all up. Now, don't jump to the conclusion that I'm saying, you know, you need to go home today and empty your bank account or you need to move to Africa. Like, that's where our minds go. God may call you to do those things. If he does, I hope you'll obey just like Mary did. But that's not necessarily the application that I want to get at today. But I will say this, a wasted life, we would all agree, is one where you look back and realize you held back. You didn't give while you had the chance. You didn't serve while you had the chance. You didn't love. You left things unsaid. You left things undone. Jesus says, she has done what she could. I mean, I hope the applications just pop in your mind. Have you done what you could? You don't know how much longer that you have. She has done what she could. She has lived out of her highest purpose and withheld nothing. So that's lesson number two. If you don't want to waste your life, then Just go for it, y'all. Withhold nothing. Like, you figure out what the purpose is. The purpose is to love God and love others and then sell out to that and therefore you won't waste. Now, here's the problem and this gets to our third lesson, all right? The problem is none of us really want to do that. And by the way, you can't do that and do it right and do it well if you don't want to do that. Do you feel the tension in that? I feel the tension in that. Like, I don't want to, you know, sell it all, you know, whatever sell it all looks like. I mean, some, for some of us, it's crossing the street, knocking on a door, or some of us, it's just you know, le- learning how to engage in a relationship that's really difficult. For, for others, it's, it, it is moving to Africa. Like, there's something in us that resists the idea that we would give it all, that we would withhold nothing. I would say the problem is many of us in here would say we are devoted to Jesus. And I I know most of you in this room would say that, but there's something, if you're honest, that keeps you from breaking the vase. Okay. And you're not alone. Like I'm there too. Okay. I struggle with this. 
What is it that keeps us from just saying, yeah, I'll break the vase because I realize the true value is in withholding nothing for Jesus. What is it that keeps us there? I think we're afraid of the cost. Like, I think we, we, we realize that withholding nothing is risky, and it is. I think we realize we all have hopes and dreams, and we're not sure that God's hopes and dreams for us match our hopes and dreams. I think God's Spirit would use this text to lovingly push into this fear and redirect us a little bit. Okay, so that's where I want to go in the rest of the time that I have with you. I want to just lovingly push into that fear through this text. And the way that I want to do it is I want to highlight the contrast between the woman who is Mary and the complainers, the disciples. And and I want to invite you to say, which one do I look more like? All right? And and I'm presupposing that you're like me. And and if you're honest, you probably look a little more like the disciples in this instance. Because we have a hard time pouring it all out. Now, let's start with Mary, really briefly. Do you think she had any regrets on Friday afternoon that she poured it all out for Jesus? Do you think when he was hanging on that cross, dying for her, bleeding for her, she was like, you know, man, I could have done something better with that, that life savings that I had stored up in that jar. No way. Fast forward 2,000 years later, y'all, you know, Mary's with Jesus now. Do you think she has any regrets about what she did? Here we are, Brentwood, Tennessee, telling this story 2,000 years later. Do you think she has a single regret? Absolutely not. Why? Because she withheld nothing. Now contrast this with the disciples, okay? The disciples are kind of judgmental. They're a little bit critical. And I don't think like, you know, it's not like they're being like, like, like super sinful here. You know, they're, they're just kind of, they're looking at somebody that's like doing an outrageous display and they're kind of just, ah, that's a little over the top. I mean, it's one thing to honor Jesus. You could have just used a little bit of that and that would have been great. Right, but, but you poured it all out. That's a little bit ridiculous. Do I have to live my life that way is what the disciples are thinking. Fast forward about a month later, these men are giving their lives away. Like, talk about withholding nothing. They're fearlessly proclaiming the good news, and they're going to their deaths, y'all. Like, they're being crucified. They're being thrown to the lions. You know, this would be a little later than a month, but fast forward throughout their lives. They're being hung upside down. I mean, all these things. Not one of the disciples was not a martyr by the time that this whole thing is done. All right? What changed? Like, what changed from them saying, that's a waste to go that far to saying, man, I'll give my blood. I'll pour it all out. I'll withhold nothing. What changed? You know what changed? Jesus died for them. That's what changed. In other words, Mary has something in John 14 that the disciples don't yet have. And here it is. She understands in her head and her heart that Jesus' love for her is personal. Now, why does she understand that? Because he raised her brother, y'all. How personal is that? Like if someone does something personally for you so great and it means the world to you, you cannot put a price tag on that. You'd sell your house, you'd sell your car, you'd empty your bank account if that person needed it or wanted it. You'd just say, everything I have is yours because you gave me my brother back. 
You see, Mary understood Jesus' love for her was personal. The disciples did not yet, but they would later. They would later. Because several days after this happened, Jesus hung on that cross, and he broke his alabaster vase, and he poured out his blood for them. And it changed everything. Here's the lesson in this. If I could just summarize this idea. You will never pour out your life until the love of Jesus becomes deeply personal for you. Just sort of like going through the church motions, the religious motions, and I'm not talking about just you need to become a Christian and then you'll pull out your life. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm actually saying uh, until something about the good news of Jesus actually shifts from your intellect down here into your heart, you know, and I'm not just talking about being, you know, you know flubbery and emotion laden, you know, that's not some of our style, but I'm talking about an affection of gratitude that begins to boil up in you and is expressed according to your personality, but is deeply known and deeply felt and deeply personal to you. That is the only way you will ever pour your life out. It just is. And not only will you pour your life out when you see how personal Jesus' love is for you, you will want to. You won't go kicking and screaming. You'll go out of love. You'll pour yourself out out of love. So here's how I'm going to start to wrap this up, and then we're going to sing another song before we go. I think this passage is an invitation to examine our hearts. Where there is coldness, judgmental attitudes, pride, stinginess, self-righteousness, wherever those places are in you, and I've got some in me, ask this question, do I really believe that I have been given something of priceless worth? And if I do, why am I holding back? You know, why am I judging other people for, for not withholding? You may intellectually understand it, but has it penetrated your heart? Okay, that's the question that I'm asking. And, and I know for some of you, it's a deep question. It's a hard question. Do you believe it's true, not just for other people, but for you? Is it personal for you? Has it sunk down deep and forged in you a response of gratitude that would free you up? Free you up to withhold nothing. Free you up not to waste however many days you have left. And I don't even know what that looks like. I'm not saying that's Africa, all right? I'm just saying whatever it is, can you live out of a spirit of gratitude that would say, uh-uh, I'm not withholding anything else anymore. What I've been given through Jesus has freed me up to overflow. Now, listen, listen to Romans. I'm gonna close with this. Listen to Romans 31. I'm gonna close and pray, and then we're gonna sing. Romans 8, 31 and 32. What then shall we say in response to these things? Okay, What things? The gospel, the good news, the sacrifice for you, for me. If God is for us, who can be against us? <laughs> he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? You see this, y'all? You're not gonna starve. <laughs> There's nothing you can do that would, in the act of withholding anything that's gonna put you in danger. 
He who did not withhold his own son, he who broke his vase for you and poured out himself for you, the father who took his most precious possession and broke it and poured it out for you, he who has given you that will not withhold from you. So be free, be free to sing, to give, to love, to repent. Be free, you are loved. Our Father, as we contemplate this gift and we even see this reflection in, in Mary going over the top and we think about Jesus going over the top in, in the extravagance of the gift that he gave to us, may we not miss how personal it is because we know it was for millions and millions of people. May we understand that we are precious to you. May we understand that every single person, ourselves included, that Jesus died for, meant the world to you, Father. Otherwise, you never would have given him up. And so I pray, Father, that this truth would sink down this morning, but also just continually as we rehearse the good news every single week in this church that this reality would sink down into our hearts and become more and more personal so that we could turn outward and upward and give and love well. So Father, as we sing, I pray for those in the room that tend to hold back a little bit, that don't like to sing or that don't like their voice. Uh, pray that you would start to free them up just to be able to do what you would call them to do and God, for those that uh, want to raise their hands, would they feel free to do that? For those that don't, would they feel free not to? For those that need to express something to you without holding back, would you allow them, even in this worship song, to do it? May no one feel manipulated or pressured to do that, God. You've asked us each in our own way to withhold nothing. And so that's my prayer for this body, even as we sing. In the name of Jesus, amen.